from resurrection to ascension, or a lot can happen in 47 days. Um, As we celebrated last week, he is risen. He is still risen. There's never been a day in your life when that hasn't been the case. Someone said that to me once, and I just thought I had never really thought about that before. There's never been a day in your life, whether you've known it or not, that that hasn't been the case, and there will never be a day in your life when that will not be true. And so we continue in this series. I'm grateful to be here. I'm humbled, tasked with concluding this mini-series. A lot can happen in seven days. Two weeks ago, we heard from Matt Henley, of course, on Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and then those few days leading up to his crucifixion. And of course, last week, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we heard from Chris Pahalchuk. What a fantastic sermon I thought that was. Today, it's my task to wrap up the series. As we go from resurrection to ascension, or a lot can happen in 47 days. And I want to read primarily from two different passages to set the stage for us this morning. Of course, last week, Chris preached from Luke chapter 24, focused on the, con- the conversation between the recently risen Jesus and two very despondent disciples as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. And Chris pointed out pretty powerfully, I thought, how as the risen Jesus sat with these disciples, they were dismayed at everything that had gone on with the trial, the crucifixion of their friend, of their Lord, how their hopes Their messianic hopes had seemingly been shattered. They were confused. Chris said they were maybe married and bickering with each other. That was the first time I'd heard that one too, so that's cool. And Chris led us toward, uh, as Chris led us toward finishing that morning last week with partaking in the bread and the cup together, he spoke about how Jesus had opened their eyes to all of the scriptures concerning himself and that the reality of what had happened was made clear to them through the breaking of the bread that he had indeed risen from the dead. And this morning, we pick up the story at that point in Luke 24, 36. These same disciples, they'd run back to Jerusalem to the 11 remaining disciples who were already saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. And it, and it says in Luke 24, 35, that these Two disciples told them what had happened on the road, how he'd been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Just imagine that. We ate with him, and it was the best Bible study ever, and he explained everything, and we didn't write it down. But they wrote other things down. So in Luke 24, I'm happy to be using the the traditional pulpit. I'm of a certain age when the other more hip pulpit is not quite tall enough. And I need new bifocals, it turns out. So this one is a little tall, taller. So in Luke 24, starting in verse 36, all the way to the end, 53, hear this. It says, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Interesting passage. While in their joy they were disbelieving, 
and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it's written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I'm sending you, sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Some translations say to the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them. And he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And there, that's where Luke ends his gospel account. But we know that Luke continues the story of what Jesus began to do up to the time of his ascension. That's the gospel of Luke. He continues that in the book of Acts. And so in Acts chapter 1 through verse 11, it says this, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that in these next few minutes, that these words from your word would speak to us, would enlighten us, that you would open our eyes and minds to understand the scriptures concerning you, and that we'd be quickened to follow in your ways as your witnesses into the world. Lord, we worship you Draw us close to yourself through your word, through our worship, in our prayers. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, we read, After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, a lot can happen in 40 days. Imagine that 40 days. Confusion 
joy mixed with doubt, mixed with confusion. Is what they're worshiping in the midst of their joy, in the midst of their doubt, and, and all of these things at one time. That sounds comfortingly human, almost. <laughs> A lot can happen in 40 days, and I want to touch on those 40 days. But first, what is it that the disciples just saw? What did they witness? Acts 1 verse 9 says, when when he said this, as they were watching, a cloud took him out of their sight. A couple of things, really. First, the biblical notion of heaven and earth is key for us if we're going to get our heads around the ascension here of what these disciples saw. See, heaven is not to be thought of as some location sort of far beyond the blue, somehow out there. And that's the place to where Jesus in this moment was sort of lifting off to. Sometimes we have this idea of heaven and earth as sort of two different realms or places that are somehow pitted against each other. This place is fallen and bad and dirty and that place is spiritual and good and better. There's a sense in which it's better. But see, this notion of two realms that, it's, that, that's, that are pitted against each other is actually not biblical. That's Plato. It's Greek. In fact, it's a metaphysical view that's characteristic of some of the early Gnostic or pre-Gnostic mystery religions teaching uh, that, that New Testament teaching often speaks against, actually. Now, the biblical notion of heaven and earth is that They both constitute all of creation, and that they are two interlocking spheres of God's reality that are not far away from each other, but are separated by something of a metaphysical veil. And the risen body, the resurrection body of Jesus here, is the first fruits, or the first, and so far the only human body that is actually fit or capable of existing in both of those worlds, or realms. Now you do wonder about Moses and Elijah, because on the Mount of Transfiguration they seem to show up with Jesus, and that's a discussion for another time. So Jesus being taken up, or lifted up, is not that he's flying away to some celestial shore out there because his bright morning has finally come and his earthly life is o'er. But I did there. He's not riding on a cloud, like on a surfboard or something. No, he's, he's going into God's space, God's dimension, on the other side of that veil. We can think of some symbolism in the Old Testament regarding a veil between us and the very literal presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Second thing to note, this language of the cloud in Scripture is very often the symbol of God's very presence. In Exodus 13, 21, we read, The Lord leads the Israelites out of Egypt in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 19.9, when the Israelites reach Mount Sinai, the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that people might hear when I speak with you. 
Remember the cloud that fills the brand new temple when God's presence shows up. Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. The people are worshiping God, proclaiming He is good and His love endures forever. And it says the temple, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand there to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Remember even when some of these very disciples, Peter, James, and John, are given a glimpse of Jesus' glory on that Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. And Peter's like, hey, this is awesome. Let's stay here. I don't want to go back. Matthew 17, 5 says, while he, Peter, was still saying this, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from that cloud said, familiar words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And they fell down on their faces like those priests back in Second Chronicles, terrified. See these words here in Acts chapter 1, a cloud received him up out of their sight. Is reminiscent of all those things. They're reminiscent also of Jesus' own words in what we call the uh, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and in his reply to the high priests later at his trial in Matthew 26, the Son of Man, he often refers to himself, will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. So something that we see predicted here in Acts 1, 11, this Jesus, say these angels, who'd been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. So what did these disciples just see here with this ascension? F.F. Bruce says, in fact, they were granted a theophany, a rare revelation of God, of Christ, as he is. They were granted a theophany, Jesus enveloped in the cloud of the very divine presence. Now Luke tells us, over the course of these 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive, quite convincingly, speaking of the kingdom of God. And let's understand that his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, and that's really what the ascension is toward, Theologians call his session, taking that, his rightly place, his, his right place enthroned to the right hand of the Father. That's what the ascension is toward. And that's what Ascension Day in the church calendar, calendar is, is commemorating. But to understand that that exaltation to the right hand of the Father was not postponed for 40 days after his triumph over death. His ascension here in Acts 1 isn't the first time that he appeared or disappeared from the disciples after the resurrection. He'd appeared to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb in John 20. She thought he was a gardener until her eyes were opened. The disciples on the road to Emmaus from last week, Luke 24, he just shows up. They hang out. They have the greatest Bible study ever. They don't write it down. They recognize him in the breaking of bread. He vanishes from their sight. Later, that same chapter, as we've read today, when these guys are telling the others all about it, he appears with them. Peace, guys. They're terrified. In John 20, again, Thomas, a week after the others, are all, Jesus is alive. 
Thomas is like, I, I don't know. That was a pretty brutal beating he got. And he saw him die, and dead guys don't rise. I won't believe. And Jesus, a week later, and the doors are locked, suddenly stands among them. Thomas, here, put your hands in my side. All these different resurrection appearances in this 40-day period, eating, touching, reinstating Peter, they're all visitations from that exalted, eternal world to which his body of glory now belonged. So what happens on this 40th day was that this series of visitations comes to an end. Why? More on that in a minute. So what's going on during these 40 days? We get glimpses of what Luke says. He shows up convincingly. He's alive. Luke tells us over these days, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. But of what is actually recorded in the scriptures regarding Jesus' words during these 40 days, we don't actually get very much detailed discussion about the kingdom of God. Certainly not to the extent that we see in, for example, the kingdom parables during his teaching ministry and the different discourses prior to his crucifixion. But what is remarkably central to the teaching of Jesus in this narrow 40-day time frame, when we look at all the Gospels and the book of Acts, is the Great Commission. Now that term, Great Commission, is often understood in, in terms of the well-known passage in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But that term, Great Commission, itself refers to multiple texts in the New Testament, not just that single most popular one at the end of Matthew. Each of the Gospels and the book of Acts in the passage we've read this morning records a dramatic passage of commissioning to a group of gathered disciples. And all of these passages are post-resurrection sayings of Jesus. And they're given at various times in various places. And the language used in these texts is remarkably distinct. They're all set in diverse settings, suggesting that in this 40-day period of time, Jesus is repeating different versions of this Great Commission with different emphases. Central to his discussion about the kingdom of God is this mission. It's people. Matthew's passage, we just read, takes place in Galilee some weeks after the resurrection. Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus begins his ministry, it says, in Galilee of the Gentiles, fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said, that those living in darkness have now seen a great light. Later, at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, Matthew alone records Jesus and the angels directing his disciples back to Galilee in order to receive this final commission to all nations. 
It's not insignificant that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus begins and ends his ministry on the mission field, as it were. Galilee of the Gentiles. Not in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. One scholar suggests that the gathering of disciples, hearing the commission in Galilee in Matthew 28, is the largest gathering of of all of Jesus' resurrection appearances and is likely the appearance that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15.6 when he says he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says. The scholar suggests that there's no other point really in the 40-day period for a chance gathering of that size and that Galilee was the strongest most natural base for the church, given that's where Jesus begins his ministry, and most, if not all, of the original disciples are Galilean Jews. Mark's Great Commission passage is found in chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. It says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. And there's an urgency to Mark's gospel. The preaching toward repentance. The one who believes and baptized will be saved. The one who does not believe will be condemned. Now Mark's passage is a bit difficult to place because of a larger textual difficulty. Those last 12 verses are, are questionable in terms of are they really original to Mark. But early church saw fit to keep it in there. And there's an urgent call to preach to all nations and to warn against condemnation. John's commission passage is in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced, and they saw the Lord Jesus. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That event seems to occur on the same night as Luke's commission passage. We've actually read in chapter 24, 36 to 53. But but there's no overlap in the language used in these different accounts may suggest they're actually distinct sayings of Jesus. So finally, the commission passage in Acts takes place 40 days after the resurrection in the vicinity of Bethany, not in Jerusalem. And that passage, again, Acts 1, verse 8, brings us back to the ascension. What did the disciples see here at the ascension? They were granted, again, a theophany, Jesus enveloped in the cloud of the divine presence. And it's from this divine presence that one day he will return. Coming from the clouds, on the clouds, with great power and glory. And what happened on this 40th day is that the series of divine visitations of the Lord comes to an end. Why? Why this dramatic ascension in this fashion, this time? It could have simply vanished from their sight like he had done on many other occasions. The reason for a public and visible ascension this time is that the disciples needed to know that he was gone for good. 
good for good. We'll return in like fashion, but he's gone for good. For these last 40 days, he kept appearing and disappearing and reappearing, but that's come to an end. And Luke tells us in verses 9 to 11 that as he was going and they were gazing toward the heavens, two men in white, angels, stood by them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? This Jesus, who'd been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go. And I think there's two things disciples needed to understand here, by extension, that we need to understand. First, to guard against what John Stott in his commentary calls unprofitable stargazing. It's a great phrase. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? As if to suggest, he has gone and you must let him go. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you can't come right now, and it's actually better. Better that I go. I can only be in one place at one time, but something better. You must let him go. He will return in his own good time, that's for sure. And just like he went publicly, no one's going to miss it when he returns. His first coming, what kind of God is this? Totally incognito in the sticks on the edge of the empire, a humble carpenter's son, 30 years incognito, I guess just being a good neighbor. (laughs) Three years of public ministry of the most profound sort. No one noticed for a while that he had come. John tells us in the first part of his gospel, he came among his own and they didn't know him, they didn't recognize him. Well, he's going to come again, and there's no missing it. Power and glory. These angels maybe seem to be suggesting, in the meantime, you guys are to get on with your witness. That's your mandate. The earth to its very end, not the skies to its very end, is to be your preoccupation. They were called to be witnesses, not stargazers. John Stott says this, the vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. And it's the same for us. Curiosity about the heavens and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment. Yes, we're to be aware and alert, but an obsession, though, with times and seasons These are aberrations that distract us from our God-given mission. End quote. We need to hear the implied message of the angels. You've seen him go. We'll see him come again. But between that going and that coming, there must be another going and coming. The Spirit must come. And you must first go and wait. Hurry up and wait. See, in their earthly messianic expectations, expectations for earthly political power, now, Jesus, is this the time when when you will restore Israel? They're still thinking in terms of this earthly political messianic sense, understandably. Jesus says, don't think that way anymore. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, into the despised Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And during these 40 days, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, and indeed that theme was central to his entire ministry. Also remember, Jesus referred to himself often as the Son of Man. We mentioned a couple passages about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and it's way back in Daniel chapter 7, when we see these two notions, kingdom, Son of Man, together. This is central to the Jewish messianic expectation in their whole worldview of who they are as the people of God and the kingdom of God. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this vision that Daniel has. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being or one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days or the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that will never be destroyed. And later in that same chapter, it gets better. Daniel 7, verse 27. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom, their kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom. And all rulers will serve and obey Him. Boy, we go on all day about that. We don't have all day. (laughs) That is central to Jewish messianic expectations. And it is central to our expectations. The hope of Israel is indeed the hope of the world. That one like a son of man will be presented in the presence of the ancient of days and he will be given a kingdom far greater than any other. And Jesus had said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And this kingdom, his kingdom that's everlasting, will be given to the people who are the holy ones of the Most High. And their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. That would not be lost on these Jewish disciples. What is it that they saw? Are they standing there thinking and recall that he, Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures finally, right? They're like, we've just seen this one like the Son of Man being presented, going to being presented to the Ancient of Days. Let it not be lost on us. This one like a Son of Man brought up on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to his Father. who is the one to whom is given all authority in heaven and earth at the right hand of the Father, this Jesus. And this Jesus will come back. And he's sending out his witnesses, his heralds, as a king sends out heralds to announce the kingdom, announce the reality 
And as that group of witnesses obediently goes, pleading that all would enter into and partake of this everlasting kingdom, it, this body, that group, grows and grows. And that body of Christ in the world, his ecclesia, his governing kingdom council in the world, is empowered ever since that particular day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. (laughs) Ever since that day, this group, this ecclesia, is empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the very King who is indeed with us until the very end of the age. The Holy Ones of God, His heralds in the world, armed with prayer and worship, proclaiming his death and his resurrection and his lordship until he returns in the same way that he left on clouds or from clouds, the very clouds of God's presence, the clouds of glory, and the kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to them. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. To what they saw that day. Worship team can come back up here. Friends, let's go out with this proclamation. Son of man who is king, extending the invitation to all who would come to become his disciple to join in the fellowship of the Holy Ones of God, the very fellowship of God. You see, the Gospel begins not with what Jesus did, but with who Jesus is. So often the message of Christianity starts with the benefits. But that moves Jesus away from the sinner and it places us in the sinner. When the amazing truth that Jesus died for my sins, friends, is not the gospel. Part of the gospel. Central message is that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the one like the Son of Man who's been given all authority, and a kingdom that's everlasting. So hear this, the center point then of our decision is not whether to trust that Jesus died for our sins, that misses the fullness of the required response to the gospel. Rather, the central point of our decision is whether or not we give our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. That Son of Man who reigns over an everlasting kingdom. And once that decision is made, forgiveness of sins comes. And the promise of everlasting life And the inheritance of that everlasting kingdom is ours. And if you don't know that, don't know that king and that story, I would love to talk with you afterwards. And there's others around that would talk to that. Come. Say yes to this king. Give your allegiance to this king. It's what it is to be human. Lord, I pray that these words would quicken us to 
be about your work in the world as your church.